0: Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. I'm Kieran McGee, and in this episode, we go back to 1910, a season that is arguably the most controversial in the entire history of the VFL-AFL. Committee room coups, on-field violence, umpires threatened after the game and assaulted after a tribunal hearing, players charged by the police and convicted in court for on-field violence, a violent brawl in the grand final that threatened to become a riot, and... On top of all this, a bribery and match-fixing scandal that erupted in the finals. And the club at the centre of most of the controversy was Carlton. The old dark navy blues will be front and centre in this episode. It will be a longer episode than normal. There was just so much happening in 1910. The season of scandal. Outside the football world, some big events of 1910 included Harry Houdini visiting Australia, and conducting one of the first flights in an airplane in Australia, at Digger's Rest in March. In early May, King Edward the Seventh died. The news reached Melbourne at midday on Saturday the 7th of May, and, as reported in the Argus on the following Monday, quote, It was perceived by everybody that as a matter of course, there would be no amusements in the city that afternoon and evening. Race-goers on their way to Caulfield stopped and turned homeward. Those who had engagements for football matches at once began to cancel the engagements. This meant that round two was pushed back a week. It is interesting to contemplate whose death today would lead to such a spontaneous cancellation of activity. Also in 1910, Halley's Comet was visible from the earth on one of its regular visits. There were some people afraid that when the earth moved through the tail of the comet, death and disaster would ensue. It may be the only time that a comment was blamed by a vfl player when they were giving evidence at the tribunal in january the league was working on a system of metropolitan zones which would tie residents of each zone to specific clubs this would stop players moving from club to club it was yet another way of dealing with the faux amateurism without mentioning the word professional in january it was generally approved by the league according to the press but this was to prove optimistic. At a league meeting in January, where the proposal was discussed, league president, Alex McCracken, said, I would like to see the teams levelled up some more. An early example of the many efforts to equalise the clubs that eventually resulted in salary caps and the drafts many years later. The scheme was voted down in early February. One of the main opponents was South Melbourne president, Henry Skinner who said that the best footballers in the country should play league football if they could be secured. He also had a shot at Geelong, declaring that they should be in a country league and not the VFL. He saw Geelong as a parasite on the league. Harsh words indeed. In March, South Melbourne held their annual general meeting, which was largely a celebration of the last season's Premiership. However, the artist had published a review of the club's balance sheet the day before that raised questions about the expenses that were required to get an amateur club onto the field. Henry Skinner was not a man to take a backward step. Invoking an us-against-them attitude that many clubs have followed in subsequent years, he praised the players for their efforts, despite the attacks of the press, and poured scorn on the Argus article, saying, I'm told that it will be published in the Times of London tomorrow. While South Melbourne were happy being premiers, up at the other end of town, Things were going badly at Carlton. Jack Worrell had stood down as coach in the middle of the previous season. However, he was still the club secretary. But a core of players wanted him out of the club. Even the 1909 end-of-season trip to Gippsland had been an issue, where 14 players signed a petition against Jack Worrell, joining as team manager. In February 1910, over a 1,000 members gathered for an unofficial indignation meeting. There were calls for a spill of the committee, including Jack Worrell as secretary. Fifteen players supported the call, including captain coach Fred Pompey Elliott. The double irony is that committees are normally only challenged when a club has been unsuccessful for a period of time and a new faction believes it has the people to achieve success. Whatever you say about Carlton, they have not been unsuccessful. And it cannot be forgotten that in early 1904, Jack Warrell was sacked after two years in the role of secretary and coach by the then Carlton committee, and it was a revolt led by the players that saw that committee replaced and Warrell returned as secretary coach. Now, six years later, with the club having been in five of the last six grand finals and won three premierships, the knives were out for Warrell this time led by a group of the players. In March, the situation worsened. A circular was distributed with 15 players' signatures, saying they would not play if Worrell remained at the club. Jack Worrell then wrote a letter to the age where he let rip at the 15 players, questioning their loyalty, implying some had stood down for the first three games of the last season, looking for more money. The AGM was on Friday the 18th of March, and the Melbourne Town Hall was too small to contain the crowd. It was described as one of the most tumultuous meetings ever held in the Town Hall. The President left the meeting, the lights went out for two minutes, there were moves to close the meeting, a new Chairman was appointed and a new ballot was declared. The votes were then taken and tallied all through the night and the results were declared on Saturday morning. The Reform Party had won, there was a new President and a new Secretary and Jack Worrell was out. The new Secretary and delegate to the League was Defender and Sentiment Arthur Ford. A player taking up the role of Secretary and Delegate? What could go wrong with that? While there was a cohort of players that wanted Jack Worrell gone, there were also other players loyal to their old coach. The dissension meant that a number of players decided to leave or retire. George Malley Johnson, Frank Silvercane, Fred Jinks, and Charlie Hammond representing 14 premierships between them all transferred to North Melbourne in the VFA. Triple Premiership player Les Beck left for Port Melbourne and skilful wingman and veteran Ted Kennedy retired at 32 taking his Triple Premiership experience with him. Although his decision may have been more driven by age than support of Worrell as he would stay involved in the club having won a seat on the committee and when the reformed president John McInerney had to take a break due to ill health Ted Kennedy became the acting president a year after he stopped playing Carlton will be starting the season with the absence of seven star players, representing 19 premierships between them and the departure of Jack Worrell, the strong man of the club for the last seven years. How would it impact their performance? But Frank Worrell would still be involved in the game. At the VFL annual general meeting in April, Jack Worrell was appointed as the coach of the umpires. It's worth noting that Carlton voted against this appointment but it was carried by an overwhelming majority. The AGM also decided to raise the pay of umpires. There was some discussion about the strain put upon umpires, though it was noted that they get paid for their services. And then Mr fayle from Richmond said, the players do not get paid, and there was laughter all around the table. Everyone knew about player payments, but nobody could say it. South Melbourne also had a new coach in 1910, Their premiership captain coach, Charles Ricketts, was in poor health at the start of the season and he told the players that he did not think it fair that he take the captaincy and then not play for a month or more. So Bill, son, Thompson, would take his place as captain coach for the season. So for two years in a row, the reigning premiership coach would not see out the following season, albeit for very different reasons. One final point before we get into the season proper demonstrates both the unbounded optimism for the expansion of the Australian game overseas and the unvarnished racism that was common in this era. In April, there was a short article describing how the VFL had received a letter from the British Embassy in Tokyo where Mr MacLean had introduced Australian football to Tokyo that winter. It was claimed there was a probability of it becoming popular with the middle schools in Tokyo. Within the near future, there could be exchanges of schools for games to promote the code further. This would seem to have been an optimistic assessment. But the headline for the article shows how times have thankfully changed. Australia and Japan. Little brown men. They play our game. It was the time of the widely supported White Australia policy. As shown later in the year when the Australian Football Council met and discussed options to promote the game overseas. It was moved, quote, the Japanese having adopted the Australian game, the council notify all controlling bodies that patronage is not to be granted to matches against teams comprised wholly or partly of Asiatics. The motion was ruled out of order, the chair pointing out that this was an issue for the federal government and not for the Football Council, which was not a political body, but it does show how normalised racist attitudes were under the white Australia policy of the time. On a lighter note, if you've ever wondered when the goal umpires started wearing white coats, that was also in season 1910. The season opened on Saturday, the 30th of April. South Melbourne unfurled their premiership flag in front of a large crowd at the Lakeside Oval and had little trouble celebrating the occasion by soundly defeating Richmond. There was much interest in how Carlton would fare given their pre season turmoil and the loss of so many of their premiership players. They took on Collingwood, led comfortably all day, and won by more than four goals. As discussed earlier, Round 2 was delayed a week with the last-minute cancellation of games upon the news of the King's death. Round 4 saw the grand final replay, with Carlton hosting South Melbourne. South had won their opening game of the season, but lost the next two. Carlton, despite their pre-season turmoil, had won three in a row, by white margins. Although the Blues trailed at half-time, they finished strongly to win by 17 points to sit on top of the ladder, leaving the Southerners adrift with only one win from four games. But it was a big loss for the Blues from this game. Their star forward George Topping took offence when South Melbourne's Albert Strickfuss elbowed Carlton's Andy McDonald in the face as they competed for the ball. Topping rushed up and King hit Bert Strickfuss and knocked him out. A crowd of spectators rushed on the Oval, running up to Streckfest, lying prone on the ground. There was pushing and jostling between spectators, but in the meantime, Carlton's Andy MacDonald kicked the Blues' sixth goal, sealing their win. Two police officers were on the Oval as well, attempting to restore order. Multiple press articles described it as one of the most disgraceful incidents ever seen on a football field. The umpire, former Collingwood Premiership captain Lardy Tollock, reported topping... The VFL were under pressure to deal with on-field violence between players as well as spectators. On the same weekend, an umpire had been struck after the Melbourne St Kilda game and needed the protection of the police to get off the ground. A Richmond supporter that had struck Fitzroy's Clyde Morrison in the same round was fined £5 or a month in jail. The Chief Commissioner of Police declared there was nothing to prevent the arrest of players who strike or hurt one another willfully. The investigation committee met on the following Wednesday night at the league rooms at the Block Arcade, with a large crowd of football enthusiasts gathered to hear the result. Topping admitted striking Streckfus, but under the provocation of seeing him deliberately punch his teammate, Andy McDonald. McDonald was also a witness and confirmed that it was Topping who hit Streckfus, as did the two police officers, who were also called as witnesses. Streckfus, however, followed the long-established custom of giving vague evidence at the Tribunal. He claimed he did not hit Andy MacDonald and, as to being struck by Topping, quote, he did not know whether the comet had hit the Earth or what had happened, unquote. So, for the first and possibly only time, Halley's Comet made an appearance at a VFL Tribunal. Such vague evidence from Bert Strykfuss was never going to help George Topping, who was suspended for the remainder of 1910 and all of 1911. A clear signal from the VFL that they were going to crack down on rough play. Carlton had lost another dual premiership player on top of the exodus of Frank Worrell loyalists at the start of the season. A week later both Streckfus and Topping were before the police court in Carlton where they were both fined 10 pounds or three months jail for their violent acts. The fact that players were being charged by police and convicted was a shock for all the league. The South Melbourne Carlton game still had more dramatic events to unfold. A South Melbourne player, Casey Marchbank, had also been reported for striking by umpire Tulloch, but his case was delayed when it was found that the relevant witnesses had not been had not been called to the disciplinary tribunal. The case was heard on the following Saturday after the fifth round had been played. A large crowd, including supporters and teammates, gathered again around the block arcade to hear the result after the hearing. Marchbank was suspended for the remainder of the 1910 season as part of the league's ongoing crackdown on rough play. But then more drama ensued. Umpire Lardy Tollock burst back into the league committee rooms, exclaiming that South Melbourne's Albert Franks had insulted him and kicked him on the ankle. Albert Franks, who was pivotal in South Melbourne's Premiership win the season before, with his strong marks late in the fourth quarter, has been described as a wild, woolly and frequently spiteful ruckman. Fresh charges were laid and the investigative committee sat down and began to hear the case. Franks denied the charges and multiple witnesses were called. A decision could not be reached on the night, but the case was treated seriously and the final decision would be made on the following Friday. The Investigations Committee met on the Friday evening with Albert Franks being represented by George Elmsy, a Member of Parliament for Albert Park, who argued that the league had no jurisdiction and the umpire should take his case to the police if he wished. The league disagreed and South Melbourne was instructed not to play Albert Franks until further notice. The penalty was eventually clarified to the end of season 1911, effectively 33 matches. It was still early in the season, and three players had already been suspended for the rest of the season, and two had been convicted of criminal offences, and an umpire had been assaulted at the tribunal. It was turning into a season of scandal. As the season progressed, Carlton kept winning games. By round 14, they'd only lost once, by one point to Essendon. Round 14 saw the Blues taking on Fitzroy at home. They had trailed the Maroons most of the day, but came home strongly. In the fourth quarter to win the game by three points but Arthur Ford was reported for abusive language to the umpire's they off the ground. The charge was upheld and he was suspended for one year. Not only had Carlton lost one of its proven premiership players but Arthur Ford was Carlton's secretary and delegate to the league. It was soon realized that this suspension would make him ineligible to fulfill both of these roles. To add insult to injury, under Carlton's constitution of the time If a club secretary could not see out his term, the role would fall to the candidate who had got the second highest number of votes. That would have been Frank Worrell, although it's unlikely that he would have been interested. Despite Carlton mounting an appeal and pointing out that Ford was about to get married and the role of secretary was his only income, the league was adamant that the suspension covered all official roles. Ernie Walton, former Blues captain, became the Acting Secretary and Delegate for Carlton. The final round of the season was held on the 4th of September. Carlton was well on top, having only lost two games, both to Essendon. Collingwood and Essendon were sure to make the fall. What position needed to be confirmed and the 4th spot was still up for grabs with South Melbourne and Geelong in contention. Geelong had beaten Essendon in the previous week and were to play Collingwood at Victoria Park. South were at home playing Fitzroy, who were well down the ladder, and Essendon were playing Richmond at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground and could finish second if they won and Geelong were able to knock off Collingwood. It was going to be a tense Saturday for these clubs. At half-time in each of the three games, the widest margin was three points. But in the second half, Collingwood was stronger than Geelong to win comfortably. South Melbourne pulled away from Fitzroy to make it into the Final Four, And Essendon continued their late-season slump, losing by one point to Richmond, to finish third on the ladder, but having lost three of their last four games. At the Junction Oval, St Kilda, who had not won a game all season, was taking on Carlton, the ladder leader, who had only lost twice. But it was the Saints who were smiling at the end of the day. Perhaps the Blues had rested some players. Perhaps they were a bit relaxed because they knew they had top spot and the all-important right of challenge locked up. Or perhaps the Saints just put in the supreme effort to avoid a winless season and, despite not scoring in the final quarter, they won 5 goal 6 to Carlton's 2 goal 12. Carlton did not score a goal in the second half, kicking only 6 behinds in the third and fourth quarter. It must have just been one of those games, surely. No reason for anyone to worry about anything at all. Surely. The first semi-final would see Collingwood playing Essendon, and a week later, the second semi semi-final would be a replay of the 1909 grand final between Carlton and South, who had snuck into the fall in the final round of the season. 24,000 people braved soaking rain to attend the first semi-final at the MCG. The adverse weather committee had decided that the conditions were not so bad to delay the game, so the match proceeded as planned. The VFA had cancelled their final, so it must have been a horrible day for football. The teams had met twice in the season for one win each, but clearly Collingwood were in better form. In the last month before the finals, Essendon had one victory, where Collingwood had won seven in a row before the finals. In the end, it was an easy win for Collingwood. Leading by 15 points at quarter time, they kept going further ahead to win by 58 points, 14 goals 11, to Western on 5 goals 7. So the only team of the four that had beaten Carlton was that. The second semi-final saw top of the ladder Carlton taking on South, who had struggled during the season but won the last five games of the season to make it into the finals. In the lead-up to the game the rain fell for about 36 hours, just lifting before the game was to begin. But while the rain may have been clearing, scandal was about to descend on the game. Alex Bongo Lang arrived at the Carlton dressing rooms and looked at the side pinned up on the wall and saw that he was not playing. Arthur Ford who was not supposed to have any official role as he was suspended and no longer the club secretary, told Alex Lang that he was not playing because the club knew that he had been bribed. Bribed. Paid off. Taken money to play poorly. In simple words, a cheat. But not just Alex Lang. Also out of the team were Doug Fraser and Bongo's best mate since childhood, Doug Gillespie. Gillespie and Lang had five premierships from seven grand finals between them. Doug Fraser had debuted this season and played well, establishing his place in the team. Ripped out of the team before the semi-final on allegation of cheating. It must have been a tense and shell-shocked change rooms. Rod McGregor, Carlton's brilliant and elusive sentiment, declared that he would stand down and protest at the treatment of the three players but was persuaded to take the field and did play in the game. This action by the Blues committee was not a last-minute decision. It had been planned earlier in the week. They'd even engaged former captain Jim Flynn to undertake his now almost traditional journey back from his pub in St. James in Northern Victoria to play finals football for Carlton. Duke Harris and Bill Goddard were also brought into the team. It was not the best-kept secret in the world, as the Argus had already reported on Saturday morning that there was a chance that Jim Flynn would be playing but it was not known who he would replace in the side. Although given Carlton knew they were going to omit Lane, Gillespie and Fraser and that Harris and Goddard and the final specialist Jim Flynn would normally be in Carlton's best 18, the real replacements for the three omitted players were five-year veteran Jack Wells who had previously captained St Kilda that ended up at Carlton after breaking an ankle in 1908 and then being caught up in in internal divisions in the Saints in 1909. He had played the first 13 games of the season for the Blues but have not been selected since. Then there were the two rookies Tom McCluskey and Archie Wilson with three games between them. Neither would go into big careers. You might have expected South to have an easy win given the turmoil in the Carlton side but if 1910 had shown anything, it was the Blues had a strong, resilient core that had seen them win all but three games of the season, despite the players lost at the start of the year and the suspensions to Ford and Topping during the season. They were not about to collapse just because there had been one more controversy on top of everything else that had happened. When the teams ran out on the ground, the cheers were loud, and according to Kickero in the Herald, the crowd was supporting the Blues committee's decision to admit the three accused players. It was a fast game. South avoided the mistake of the previous year's first final and played the ball rather than the man. This was how they had won the grand final and it seemed to be working for them again this year. South had the lead at quarter time even though the Blues were kicking with the wind. Maybe the turmoil in the rooms before the games had distracted the Blues early in the match. Carlton then looked like they were dominating in the second quarter, but their kicking was letting them down, while South took full advantage of their opportunities. At halftime, the the line was South, 5 goals 2, 32, versus the inaccurate Blues on 2 goals 11, 23. The third quarter was the best of the match. Carlton kept the game moving quickly, but more importantly got their kicking boots on to score 3 goals 2, to South's 2 goals 3. So at the final change, there was only a four-point advantage to South Melbourne. In the first ten minutes of the last quarter were all Carlton, but again their inaccuracy meant they did not get full reward for their efforts, only scoring four behinds to tie the game. And then South got two quick goals against the run of the play to build their lead again. But Carlton would push back again, with Gotts goaling to put them six points down, with their supporters cheering them on for one more effort. But it was to be the red and white team's day with South's rover Fred Carpenter scoring the last goal of the day and ensuring the margin was 2 goals, South on 10 goals five sixty-five, to Carlton on 6 goals 17, 53. Follower in the age thought South were lucky to win but did acknowledge that bad kicking is bad football so perhaps it was Carlton that had themselves to blame. So the next game would effectively be a preliminary final between Collingwood and South Melbourne with the winner to play Carlton in the grand final thanks to the Blues having the right of challenge. But the fallout of the bribery accusations was just beginning and would dominate the next two weeks before the grand final was played. Carlton had been the minor premiers but were now dealing with major problems. There will be a lot to cover as the scandal unfolds so let me summarize how it was dealt with and then we can get into the detail. Also remember that this was a time before radio, television, social media and even telephones were limited so this story played out in the newspaper articles, letters to the editor which is perhaps the social media of the day, word of mouth and gossip and people attending hearings or waiting outside venues as hearings went late into the night so that they could be the first to find out what had happened. The first stage would be an interview given by Alex Lane, printed in the Argus on the Monday after the final against South, the only time we hear his version of events, along with an initial statement by Acting Secretary Ernie Walton. Then there was the Carlton Committee investigation on the Monday and Tuesday evening. The League would meet for the first time on the following Friday, the day before the preliminary final, with inquiries to be held on the Saturday evening and then the Monday through to the Friday night before the grand final. A fortnight after the momentous semi-final. There was a lot happening with Carlton and they still had the grand final to play. Let's have a look how it unfolded in detail and I will try and be brief. Alex Bongo Lane gave an interview with the Argus published on the Monday after the semi-final loss to South Melbourne. He claimed that he had been approached by a man in the street and been offered £10 to run a bye in the game against South. Within 10 minutes he'd given the money to a mate to back Carlton with a local bookie and figured that he would turn the tables on the people looking to undermine the game. He said he never intended not to push himself in the game. I wouldn't know how to do it, he said. Lang declared that Gillespie knew nothing about the payment. They had been friends since childhood and he thought this was the reason he was blamed. As for Doug Fraser, Bongo said that he believed Fraser had been approached but not taken any money. So while Gillespie was totally innocent in this account, Doug Fraser was at least aware of the incident. In the articles published that week, which seemed to be quoting Ernie Walton, Carlton's acting secretary, a more complex picture involving more players was beginning to emerge that did not align with Alex Lang's version of events. In this version, it was a player, Jack Backey, who told the club that he had been approached with a £60 bribe by a shopkeeper, probably also known as a bookie, if he could get three other players to play dead. The club got Backey to gather more information and mounted surveillance on the bookmakers shop to see which of the other players were involved. On the Thursday before the game Backy returned to the betting shop with a trainer. The bookie asked if Doug Fraser was in on the deal and when told yes the bookie said that makes four. When Backy left the bookmakers they rang into Alex Lang and Doug Fraser. Doug Fraser was also seen to have entered the bookies on the Friday morning. Other articles also said that Jim Marchbank had been offered £100 if he could get two others to run a bye. He refused to have anything to do with it. There was criticism of Carlton for not taking this information to the league and or the police. But there was also praise for Carlton for taking three players out of the semi-final which could have cost them the game. Perhaps a cynical person would note they still had the right of challenge up their sleeve Would they have taken the same action if losing the game put them out of the finals? Obviously, there were many calls for an inquiry. Carlton met on the Monday evening and Tuesday evening. The result was that Doug Gillespie was cleared of all charges, along with the club trainer, Edward McInerney, who had also been caught up in the accusations of match-fixing. But Alex Lang and Doug Fraser would not play until further notice. But that's all that was revealed by Carlton. There was a lack of transparency about the whole affair. And the public were not satisfied. The pressure continued to build on the VFL to do something and the issue not yet answered. Who was offering the money? On the Thursday the Argus raised questions about two other matches that were subject of allegations with no action yet taken by the league. The matches in question were the South Melbourne Fitzroy game in the last round of the season and the South Melbourne versus Melbourne game in the third last round. The Argus on Friday had an article that gave a detailed description of multiple Fitzroy players being approached by someone from South Melbourne, maybe not a player or an official though, offering bribes. The Fitzroy players all said they knocked the offer back. People might notice that there is one common element in all three matches being investigated, one team that featured in all three. Would South Melbourne become a focus of the league's investigation? The VFL delegates met on the Friday and agreed to begin an investigation on Saturday night after the preliminary final had been played. Oh, by the way, there was a small matter of a preliminary final to get through. Normally the primary focus and the lead up to the grand final it was being overwhelmed by the attention on the match-fixing allegations that had started with Carlton but now we're beginning to draw attention to other suspicious matches. 43,000 people, though, rolled up to the MCG to see Collingwood take on South Melbourne. Collingwood's captain, George Angus, told his players to play the ball and keep well in front of their opponents, and they should win. In South's room, their captain coach, Bill Thomas, told his boys to do their best, and the ever-present South president, Henry Skinner, told the players to keep the pace fast, keep the enemy always on the move, play the ball, keep the game open, and always look for the red and white. It was an even first half of the game with good play by both teams. South had looked the stronger team early on but the Magpies came back into the game late in the second quarter. Collingwood's accuracy in front of goals giving them the advantage as both teams had a similar number of scoring shots. At halftime the scoreboard read Collingwood 4 goals three twenty-seven, to South 3 goals 5 23. The third quarter was another even affair with each team scoring a goal and Collingwood were just five points in front. It seemed that the stage was set for another cliffhanger. Would the reigning premiers, who had just made the finals, continue their late-season rush to a grand final replay, or would the Magpies keep their narrow lead? As it turned out, it was Collingwood who got their system going and kicked three quick goals, completely rattling the Southerners. Despite picking up a couple of late goals to add some respectability to the score, it would be Collingwood who would proceed to the grand final. South Melbourne, the team whose name had been mentioned in connection to bribery in multiple games, was out of the running, but what would be revealed by the league's inquiries On the Saturday night, the league delegates gathered at the rooms at the Block Arcade to begin a detailed investigation into the extraordinary issue of bribery that had all of Melbourne talking. Carlton's acting secretary, Ernie Walton, was the first witness and he outlined the story of the players being approached by the Carlton committee organising to put the bookmakers under surveillance, which resulted in Lang, Gillespie and Fraser being stood down before the second semi-final. After this evidence, the question of allowing the press to witness proceedings became a critical issue. Henry Skinner, South's President, said that as his name had been mentioned, the press should hear it all and that if any allegations were printed, people would have to prove it. Henry Skinner had brought his own shorthand man to record all of what was being said. This was in addition to the official shorthand recorder appointed by the League. In an era before digital recorders and other recording devices, people skilled at shorthand were the only option for getting a transcript of what was being said. Henry Skinner denied any connection with the bribery affair and was adamant that he would protect his reputation in the courts. The chair of the meeting identified there were two options. Hold the meeting in the open, with the press and witnesses would need to be aware they could be held to account, taken to court for anything they said, which would limit what witnesses would be prepared to say, or hold the session in private, without the press, where witnesses would be more free in what they were prepared to reveal. The press left the room as the league considered the issue. The next scheduled session of the inquiry was on Monday. This was supposed to be when Fitzroy and Melbourne players would be quizzed about their recent games against South Melbourne and the bribery allegations that had circulated around Melbourne since. But first, there were legal issues to address. The league got legal advice from a Mr Shute, likely to be William Shoot, who played for Essendon in the VFA days between 1889 and 1895 and had become a barrister in 1892, and would eventually become a judge in the Supreme Court in 1919. There was debate about whether his advice should be given privately, or in front of the press. It was resolved that the press could attend, and the League revealed its legal advice. In short, the League had the right to conduct an inquiry, and if people thought evidence was provided was defamatory, the League was not at risk, but witnesses who gave evidence could be sued. And any newspaper that published such evidence could also be sued. If anyone other than the League delegates were present, their protection against legal liability would be lost. In effect, if people were afraid of giving evidence in public, then the inquiry might be completely flawed. But if the evidence was all private, there would be no transparency. Would people have confidence that justice had been delivered? That the cancer of bribery had been addressed? Mr. Henry Skinner said that he had similar legal advice from two eminent barristers. The league decided to hold the inquiry in private. When the possibility of litigation was mentioned, one person in the audience is reported to have said, Footballers have had a good deal out of the game. It's about time the poor lawyers had a cut out of the big gates. I think it's fair to say that lawyers have done all right out of the game over the years. It is also worth noting that that the only Delegate who brought their own shorthand writer to the first session of the Inquiry, and the only person that shared they had independent legal advice on the consequences of holding such an inquiry was South Melbourne's President, Henry Skinner. Draw your own conclusions. Sadly, despite the presence of a shorthand writer, no detailed records of what was discussed in these private hearings has been found in the League archives. There is just the newspaper reports, which obviously had to consider the risk of legal proceedings, and the eventual results of the hearings. Interestingly, the reporting of the affair does seem to have been more open to mentioning names and the details the further the newspaper was from Melbourne. Perhaps in those less connected times, the risk of a legal case was calibrated by the distance from the people involved. Further investigations were held on the Tuesday and Wednesday night, with Fitzroy and Melbourne players interviewed on Wednesday The league did agree to share a transcript of the evidence related to the Melbourne and Fitzroy games against South Melbourne to be shared with the press. Perhaps it was only the Carlton bribery allegations that were considered sensitive. The league agreed that the rumours relating to the payments of players being offered to the Melbourne players was unfounded. It was also decided that the Fitzroy players had been offered trivial amounts of money by persons unknown and the Fitzroy players should be commended for their actions That is, all the evidence is that they ignored the offers. And the inquiry rested on the Thursday. The league then met for three hours on the Friday, grand final eve, to hear final evidence from Carlton's Jim Marchbank and consider what decisions to make about innocence, guilt and penalties. At 11.30 it was announced that Albert Lang and Doug Fraser had been found guilty of conduct not conducive to the best interests of the game of football, and they were suspended for five years. Doug Gillespie and the trainer Ed McInerney were exonerated from all blame. Jim Marchbank had not attended the hearing, so a decision was made to reconvene the following evening after the grand final. In the minutes of the meeting, the following resolution was also recorded. Quote, It was agreed unanimously that the League expresses regret at the mention of Mr. Henry Skinner's name in conjunction with the matters inquired into and further expresses its highest confidence in Mr. Skinner's integrity as a citizen and a member of the body. So, nothing to do with the well-known entrepreneur and South Melbourne president at all, or was it an attempt to head off any potential litigation? Two young players, Albert Lang at 22 and Doug Fraser at 23 would carry the penalty for one of the biggest scandals in league history, accepting bribes to help lose a final. But no action against the person or persons who paid the money. No action against the bookmakers who stood to benefit. No sharing of the evidence that the league used to make the decision about the Carlton players. No action by the league to open up to honest professionalism which might have produced enough incentive to ignore attempts at bribery. Perhaps the example of two players having their careers effectively ended might stand as a warning against further temptation, but it seems to me that those who paid the money got away scot-free. Attention now turned to the other small matter that had to be completed, a grand final. As people read their Saturday morning papers to get the news on which players had been cleared or suspended in the bribery scandal, They would also have looked at the match previews and got ready to see who would be premiers in 1910. Would Carlton be able to shake off the scandal that had rocked the club and return to their dominant form that had seen them finish clear on top of the ladder? Or would Collingwood continue their winning streak which now extended to nine straight games? The umpire for the game was Jack Elder, officiating in his third grand final. Carlton would once again be led by their captain coach Fred Elliott and Collingwood was led by George Angus, their captain coach who was a Boer War veteran who did not start his VFL career until 1902 when he was 27. A member of the Magpies back-to-back premiership teams in 1902 and 1903 he became captain coach in 1910. He was not the quickest player but he knew how to read the game which served him well as coach. His son played for Collingwood in 1928 and a grandson Jeff Angus played for Hawthorne in the 1970s including Hawthorne's premiership in 1971, another of the grandfather-grandson premiership families. The curtain raiser was between the Melbourne public schools playing a Sydney schoolboys team. Sydney won by four points. There were also three Dutch naval vessels visiting Melbourne and some of the sailors and officers would be attending the grand final. Perhaps they would be so inspired by the Australian game they would take it back to Europe with them. The crowd was a record 42,500. The previous weeks had been full of off-field drama and scandal, but the football supporters of Melbourne and Victoria had still packed themselves into the MCG to see who would be Premiers. The league might have been hoping for a good game that would focus people's attention away from scandal and back onto the finer points of football. This hope would be unfulfilled. Carlton had defeated the Magpies twice in the season by about 5 goals each time, but much had changed since that last home-and-away encounter. Collingwood was taking an unchanged team into the game. The Blues welcomed back the cleared Doug Gillespie, who returned to the team, replacing veteran Jim Flynn. From the starting bounce, the game was hard, fast and strenuous. Umpire Jack Elder would later recall that the tempers were like tinder, with the atmosphere of sullen hostility amongst the players. The Blues got the ball forward first and opened the scoring with a point. Collingwood cleared the ball with a series of passes and George Angus used a fine drop kick open Collingwood's account with a goal. The game was described as hot and close and in the excitement no one gave a thought to the consequences. Towards the end of the quarter Collingwood had a rush of success were able to pick up three goals in succession. At quarter time the Magpies had opened a handy lead four goals three to Carlton one goal two. Clearly Collingwood skipper George Angus thought that it was enough of a lead because in the second quarter he moved to a completely defensive set of tactics. Much to the dismay of many observers, one described it as a winning team playing a losing team's game. Even Dick Lee, the leading goal kicker in the league, spent his time down in the back line. Not quite sure how to play in such a strange position. His inexperience resulted in a free kick to Carlton's small forward, Vin Gardner, who got their only goal for the quarter. However, one of Collingwood's few moves forward did result in a goal to Paddy Gilchrist. Meanwhile Carlton were wasting their opportunities perhaps it was due to the additional pressure of Collingwood players flooding the back line but the Blues just could not kick accurately or perhaps the events of the last two weeks had rattled the team. Collingwood had some injury worries when young first-year player Joe Scadden went up for a mark and came down heavily getting what was described as a wrench across the loins. He was carried off and the doctors decided He was suffering from a contusion of the kidney, clearly a serious injury. However, bravely, or foolishly, he came back onto the ground and tried to do his best for the team. He'd played every game for the season, but this was to be the last match of his short career. Then Collingwood Ruckman, David Ryan, injured his elbow and was practically of no further use for the game. The Magpies were in front on the scoreboard, but were losing players to injury, giving Carlton an advantage in effective and fit players. The half-time score had Collingwood 15 points up, 5 goals 3, to Carlton's 2 goals 6. According to Observer in the Argus, the second half was not as exciting, skillful, nor as good-tempered as the first half. Evening things up in the injured players' takes, Carlton's sentiment Rod McGregor had injured his leg and hobbled down to the Blues forward line. The second half had only been underway for a short time when Collingwood's Percy Wilson, a rover slash forward pocket, was also injured and could provide little value for the rest of the game. Despite Collingwood's lack of fit players and a focus on defensive tactics, their skill and talent did provide the opportunity for some breakthrough moments. Dick Lee was able to pick up the ball on the run and score their sixth goal and then shortly afterwards Collingwood's Richard Dakin put them comfortably ahead with the seventh goal. Collingwood was controlling the game and keeping the ball in their forward line but in an effort that might have kept the Blues supporters faith alive Jim Marchbank received a free kick from a long way out. Despite the game having been hard going, for nearly three quarters he took his time, stepped up and scored a much-needed long-distance goal. However, any hopes raised must have been dashed when Dick Lee, using the intuition and anticipation possessed by champion players in any era, intercepted a pass from a Carlton player and kicked Collingwood further ahead with their eighth goal. But the Blues had not been the champion team of this era for nothing, and they were going to keep on pushing forward whenever they could. A series of passes got the ball to the injured McGregor, and he scored Carlton's fourth goal. The three-quarter time score saw Collingwood leading eight goals five to Carlton, four goals nine. The Blues would need to score four goals in the last quarter and hold Collingwood to none. But it would be a brave supporter who would write them off completely. Given this season of scandal, with umpires being assaulted after games and at tribunals, after the turmoil of clubs with committees being sacked, after the bribery scandal that was still reverberating around the country, surely, with one quarter to go, the grand final could finish, with people focusing on the game, celebrating the winners, and commiserating with the losers. Surely, nothing else could happen in one quarter of football shortly. The fourth quarter started with a couple of points to Collingwood. The Carlton supporters were urging their men on. The Collingwood Barrackers making as much noise for their team. Collingwood had the lead, but it was tense and passions were aroused. At about the 10 minute mark, there was a disputed marking contest on the wing between Carlton's Jack Backey and Collingwood's Tom Baxter. They began fighting, punches being thrown freely. The crowd noise was intense. Cullingwood's Jack Shorten was next on the scene, punching, backing, in an attempt to protect or support his teammate. The Blues' Percy Sheehan jumped into the fray and was punching Shorten. More players were joining in. A free fight was taking place in the middle of the MCG. Matters quickly got worse when attendants from both sides left the boundary line to join in the fight or to separate players. Police raced out to the centre of the ground in, a t- in an attempt to restore order. The crowd were growing restive. Then about 30 spectators jumped the fence creating all the elements necessary for a riot to break out, with over 40,000 enraged spectators crowded into the MCG. It had only taken a few seconds to get to this point. If it went on for much longer, who knew what would happen? The umpire blew his whistle, blew it with all his might, and then, in a flash of inspiration, umpire Jack Elder grabbed the ball and bounced it. Players looked over and realised that there was a game to be won. Police were able to drive the spectators off the ground. The brawl had taken a moment to start and now, in just another moment, the players and supporters focused their attention back on the game. Many observers and umpire elder were convinced that a full-blown riot had been narrowly averted. The ball was raced down to the Blues forward line and Rob McGregor scored a much-needed goal for Carlton, cutting their deficit to 15 points. But the magpies had led all day and were not to be denied. Their wingman, Percy Gibbs, Roosted the ball forward, and it surprised all by dribbling through the goals. It was the sealer, and Collingwood had the game. Carlton's Jack Wells reduced the margin again by picking up the ball out of a pack and snapping another goal, but it was too late to change the result. The bell went to end the season, and Collingwood premiers by 14 points, 9 goals 7, 61, to Carlton on 6 goals 11, 47. Dick Lee showed that he was a champion of the era by scoring 4 goals in a grand final winning effort. Carlton were clearly playing under extraordinary pressure with the distraction of the bribery scandal, occupying the club in the two weeks leading up to the grand final day, and that must have been a factor in the scragging and fighting that occurred during the day. Both captains spoke to the Herald after the game. Collingwood's George Ankers said, We are entitled to the feeling of satisfaction. Apart from that inspired by having won the premiership, we have beaten the side that won the first round, that is, finished on top of the ladder. Had Carlton won, then they would have fully deserved it. Nobody could feel more sorry for them, for their troubles, than I have. Unquote. Such sympathy between Collingwood and Carlton would dry up in the years to come. The violent grand final is often noted as the beginning of the intense rivalry between these clubs that has continued for over a hundred seasons, regardless of where they are in the ladder. Fred Pompey Elliott Speaking from the Carlton Rooms after having lost his second grand final as captain coach, said I am satisfied with our performance this season. Had certain circumstances not arisen within the past few weeks, I'm satisfied we would have won the premiership. I must congratulate Collingwood on their performance. Ten weeks ago, I did not think they had a chance. They played well today. Fred Elliott also announced his retirement out of the game. After 11 years with the club and the last two as captain coach, he was bowing out. But before everyone could go home after the game or head off to celebrate or commiserate, there was one final hearing that the league had to hold regarding the bribery scandal. Jim Marchbank, Carlton's veteran ruckman and centre-half forward, had been offered £100 to play stiff before the semi-final against South Melbourne. He immediately informed the Carlton committee and did not mention any names in relationship to the affair. He had been best on ground in the semi-final and one of the better players in the grand final so there was no suspicion that fell upon him. The league decided that, given there was no more information, that no further action would be required. This part of the inquiry was over in 10 minutes. Four players were reported following the last quarter fight. Becky for assaulting Baxter, Baxter for assaulting Becky, Shorten for hitting Becky, and Sheehan for retaliating against Shorten. These were the incidents that started the brawl, so I'm assuming the umpire held them especially responsible. The investigation committee for the league met on the Wednesday night. The players denied all charges and if their evidence had been accepted hardly anyone hit anybody and they were not the ones that started it and there was nothing to see here and even if there was they couldn't remember what happened. The league gave much more weight to the evidence of the field umpire and the boundary umpire which basically matched what had been reported in the newspapers. Backey and Baxter were suspended for the entire 1911 season and Shorten and Sheehan were suspended until the halfway mark of the 1912 season. The chair of the committee was scathing of the players' evidence and behaviour and hoped that they would use their time out of their game to reconsider the way they played football. In a normal season that would have been the end of the matter. There had been a shocking fight that nearly incited a riot, but the key players had been reported and given severe penalties that punished the guilty and set an example for other players with the hope that this would improve the game. But 1910 was not a normal season. There would be one more twist. Collingwood's right forward, Richard Dakin, wrote a letter to the chair of the VFL saying Tom Baxter had been wrongfully accused and confessing his own guilt. A month later, at the next meeting of the league, the VFL made the decision to reopen the case. The investigation committee met again and they were told, with straight faces, that Richard Dakin, a redhead, had been the guilty man, throwing all the punches a poor old darkhead Tom Baxter had been falsely accused of. Despite the fact that multiple newspaper reports, a field umpire and a boundary umpire, had all identified Tom Baxter as the guilty party and not his best mate Dakin, for reasons that have not been explained, The league accepted that Dakin was being honest and noble in coming forward and confessing his guilt. And it had been the umpires who had mistaken identities, an honest mistake. So they cleared Baxter to play the following season and suspended Dakin for all of 1911. Did anyone tell the league that Dakin and Baxter had been mates for years? Did anyone tell the league that Dakin was leaving the VFL and Victoria to live in Western Australia in 1911, so any penalty was meaningless? Did anyone in the league think that maybe they'd been duped? I am sure that Packie, Sheehan and Shorten, who all had to serve 12 to 18 month suspensions, wished they had a mate who would stand up for them like Dakin had for Baxter. But perhaps their mates intended to play in the next season. The regular Premiership of Australia game was held on the 15th of October in Adelaide. Port Adelaide had an easy win over a Collingwood team that only had 9 of its Premiership team playing. And only 8,000 people attended the Adelaide Oval. Final scores Port Adelaide 15 goals 20 to Collingwood 7 goals 9. Port Adelaide were now premiers of Australia. It will be interesting to see if this traditional postseason game is maintained in the years ahead. Let's try and end the year with a more positive story. While we have seen the VFL talk about how well the game is going overseas and the potential for international expansion it is worth noting that the New York Times published an article with the headline Australian game of football is the best on October 23 1910. Major Pixotto had led his San Francisco boys club home after their tour down under in 1909. He wrote major articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post in 1910 singing the praises of the Australian game and pointing out its superiority to the American football. Sadly The rest of the United States did not show the same enthusiasm as the Major and the expansion of Australian rules football is still a work in progress. It had been a season unlike any other, but in a way the issues of the previous years were pointing in this direction. The VFL was extraordinarily popular in Melbourne. Big crowds attended every week and significant sums of money were flowing into the clubs and supporters wanted their clubs to be successful. This created pressure to get the best players. Maintaining an officially amateur requirement meant that the players were paid in secret and financial affairs of the clubs were murky, to say the least. Gambling on football was popular and readily accessible. An on-field play had been allowed to become more violent with a lack of support for umpires when players were reported. Some severe penalties for players in 1910 may see a turning point of that trend But until the payment of players was open, and that club finances were allowed to represent reality, money and gambling would be an issue. Carlton had been at the centre of affairs, and although it did not win the Premiership, its efforts at maintaining a top-level performance despite losing many of its players before and during the season deserves respect, and Collingwood now had the honour of being Premiers. Would they be able to keep it in 1911? And one final recommendation for your reading list, On The Take, by Tony Joel and Matthew Turner, which provides a detailed review of Carlton and the bribery scandal and related issues. A terrific insight into this era of football and a wonderful resource for this podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave reviews wherever you get your podcast from. It will help others to find it. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au and check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or our Facebook page and Twitter accounts. Thanks, and I hope you join me next time.